Welcome, listeners, to Time for an Awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom with all that getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com which is the homepage in Catch the Live Stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, it's <clears throat> excuse me, www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Also, you can go to abb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's A-B-I. B-I-T-U-M-I forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. And in that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live. Even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at time for an awakening at gmail.com. Again, that's time for an awakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening. I also have the fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in time for an awakening radio program. They always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And time for an awakening media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you, you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.06 here in the city of Philadelphia on this uh, very chilly Sunday evening, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening should be an interesting program. Attorney, legal strategist, and human rights activist, Attorney Adiadra Farmer Paleman is with us this evening to talk about her work as the founder and executive director of the Restitution Study Group, also the co-chair of the Organization of Travel Unity. Tonight, 
we're going to be talking reparations. So buckle your seatbelts, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. A lot of interesting information is going to be dispensed tonight from our special guests this evening. And we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. 
history tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 711, 712. And we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. I want to welcome in my, uh, my co host for this evening and every evening <laughs> that we broadcast. Uh, boy, I'm telling you, uh, there's a lot of things going on here on this engineering board. Uh, Philadelphia <laughs> activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia, 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, brother. <laughs> How are you, sir? Boy, I'm telling you, my hands are cold. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm just, I, I'm just um, excited to have, uh, hey, look, Elliot, you know, as, as you know, we've been um, following in the whole thing of reparations and and trying to just trying to uh, get a handle on how we're going to um, just become politically um, educated and informed about what is our position in relationship to our repair. And, 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 and I'm being reintroduced to sister Deidre, and I hope she don't mind me saying, uh, calling in that manner. Um, (laughs) I'm really, I'm really excited, you know, of our conversation tonight. Well, you know, Richard, um, these conversations, as we try to do it on Time for Awakening, you, uh, we try to bring them full circle uh, about three or four weeks. No, about three weeks ago, we had uh, uh, male co-chair of Cobra, Billy Cam Howard, was with us to talk about the legal, uh, what's going on in, in, uh, with H.R. 40. Uh, last week, we talked about the tribunal that was held in New York, New York City in the last week in October. Uh, 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 with our guest that was with us, uh, I don't have all the information in front of me. And tonight, our special guest this evening is Attorney Deirdre Farmer Paleman. Uh, she's a legal strategist, former adjunct law professor, and human rights activist. In 2002, she filed a landmark class action lawsuit for slavery reparations against blue chip corporations. Uh, attorney Farmer Paleman is credited with popularizing the slavery reparations movement through her groundbreaking research exposing corporate complicity in slavery. In January 2000, she exposed Aetna Incorporated for writing insurance policies on lives of enslaved Africans with slaveholders as the beneficiaries in the 1800s. Her research linking J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, uh, Bank One to slavery led to companies making a public apology in January of 2005. Uh, Tony Farmer Paleman earned her undergraduate degree in political science at the University of New York Brooklyn College in 1988. She completed her master's degree specializing in lobbying political campaign management at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in 1995. She earned a Jewish doctor's degree 
from New England School of Law in Boston, Massachusetts in 1999. And as a law student, she studied international law and corporate constitutional law at the University of Nairobi, Nairobi fac, uh, Faculty of Law in Nairobi, Kenya in 1996. This is a bad woman. Listen, I can't keep reading uh, all the things. I, I want her to talk about herself tonight. You know, listen, Richard, in this uh, 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 capitalist society that we live in, with the education that attorney Deirdre has, she can basically call her own shots. What I want her to do is talk about what made her pursue the work that she's doing because it's important work. It needs to be documented uh, for our history moving forward, whether this country exists tomorrow or whether it falls. All of this needs to be documented for our historical record. And what she's doing is very important. Uh, I want to welcome to Time for an Awakening. Thank you. Attorney Thank you so much. <laughs> I, um, I'm honored to, to join you, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. Thank you for inviting me. I'm always happy to share this information that I have, um, I guess I would say by the creator, have been ordained to do. Um, I feel honored to serve the community with this research. Um, well, um, let me say um, that this whole issue is is reparations, and um, reparations is a concept that stands for, as far as African American people are concerned, or descendants of enslaved Africans, it stands for repair. That is to um, some form of repair that is owed for a crime that has been committed against our ancestors and against us as well. Um, a lot of folks don't fully appreciate what the crimes are that we suffer from as descendants of enslaved Africans, um, and that's because they forget that we are coming from various nations on another continent and uh, we we mostly don't know our actual families that are on that continent. Um, we have uh, health conditions that if we knew who our family members were, we might understand how to deal with them, how to treat uh, different uh, ailments, um, why we have certain challenges, or um, or why we have certain uh, unique uh, abilities. Um, but we have lost the connection, and that is one of the, the greatest injuries that we have. But there are also people who have gained from us uh, who have inherited wealth that belongs to us. And that is what motivates me in my effort against corporations that are complicit in slavery. Um, my, my work... Uh, is done within an organization, or I would say an institute, it's called the Restitution Study Group. And what we do is we research companies that are complicit in slavery. We look at the histories of various companies, uh, some of the largest companies in the world, and we trace 
their origins back to uh, slavery. Um, and uh, I'm going to let you guys ask some questions at this point. Attorney Deirdre, talk about what started you on this path. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of our guests that come on from different backgrounds, uh, activists, uh, college professors, uh, authors, uh, they always go back sometimes to their childhood, sometimes to college. Uh, it's always a turning point for most of our guests uh, to, mm-hmm. to start them on the path to whatever they're doing. Talk about what started you on the path to the work that you're continuously doing and have done. Well, I grew up um, actually fairly uh, poor. I, you know, my my sisters don't like that label, but I'm very conscious of the fact that we did not have wealth and that we lived extraordinarily modestly. Um, and um, and I and I'll be specific that my mother actually ended up divorced and and raising six daughters by herself. Mm. Um, And so she was a a divorced mother of six. And uh, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment. Um, And uh, so I shared a room with five sisters growing up. And uh, and it was not the the most affluent community. It was, uh, we lived in East New York, Brooklyn, and it was, uh, it was a, a rough environment um, for us to grow up in. But one of the things I was conscious of at the time was that brownstone could be purchased for one dollar. You know, and I always wonder how come we, you know, how come we didn't get a brownstone? We could all have our own bedrooms. But I didn't realize at the time that if you could get this one dollar, um, you needed maybe twenty thousand or more to do the renovation. <laughs> And uh, so we couldn't afford to to do that. But I always wanted real estate. I mean, that was just something that I was very conscious of from a young child. And because we were poor, you know, my my grandfather uh, played a big role in in helping my mom out as much as he could. And uh, he often would complain, you know, about government benefits being denied or too slow uh, and 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 he would actually acknowledge. He said, "You know, they still owe us our forty acres and a mule." This was one of his regular things, and so I I paid attention to that. And I'd say, um, probably by the time I finished college, I began reading um, writings by Malcolm X, and and I can't remember the exact book, but I do remember him writing about what is owed, and um, that 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 basically it was it was reparations without labeling um labeling labeling it reparations um i so i i i it made good sense to me it sounded like what my grandfather was talking about and i began to sort of research a little bit more now research was different back then we couldn't just google you know today people call google and research and it is to a certain extent but back then you had to actually go to the library and pull documents and um, one of the uh, organizations I was able to learn about was run by uh, Dr. Doctors Hare, uh, the, the Hare the married couple, Nathan Hare and his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned about their involvement in uh, in reparations and reached out to them. 
to uh, get a little bit more information about the cause. But that was the beginning, um, the very beginning. But th subsequent to that, I, uh, I participated in work around the African burial ground. Um, and, um, and it was during that time that I realized that I needed to, to actually go to law school for sure. I, I actually had a dream of being a lawyer earlier on, but, but at that burial ground uh, were the remains of about 20,000 formerly in, Africans who had been enslaved at the time that they were buried there. Um, and, uh, and, and that, the experience of them being on the outside of Wall Street, I had the, uh, the opportunity to speak with scholars who were there researching and excavating the site. I, I witnessed uh, remains of Africans who looked like they were screaming when they were buried. I, I learned that the muscles of skeleton, skeletons uh, uh, or of dead people, the muscles would deteriorate and sometimes their mouths would open. Um, but uh, but this is what I witnessed this. I was I was actually invited to uh, to help to halt the building of a, a federal office building on the site. Uh, and in fact, I didn't know it at the time, but the person who invited me was the great great granddaughter of Elijah Muhammad. Her name was Amal Muhammad, and at the time she was working at the Schomburg, and she knew that I worked with women drummers. Uh, I'm a musician also, but uh, she that, felt that, that women, I'm sorry? That, that beat. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't know it. I didn't know that, that, that who her great-great-grandfather was until, gosh, I think I, I had already, I don't know, might have been 10 years later, I learned who she actually was. I never knew it. Um, but but I was working with women drummers, and they wanted women. She was at the Schomburg, and the Schomburg was very involved with the remains at the burial ground. And uh, what we, we put together was an event, a 26-hour drum vigil. And um, I, was, I was working in media. I was a, a press officer uh, for the Department of Health, and so they they – they invited me to assist with that as well. And so my job really was to make the dead live again, pretty much. I had to publicize as much as possible about the site, but also do a, a music, uh, a tribute to, the, the, to our ancestors buried there that could get international attention. And, and, and a, a group of folks who had no money, and we were not like the, the, the known activists uh, in, uh, in, in the New York City area managed to, to pull off a very um, well-published uh, uh, event. It, it, played, it was one of many events that happened, but it was one of the biggest ones that took place there. And, uh, and, and so the burial ground was halted, and, um, and now there's a memorial on the site rather than a parking pavilion, um, but that was that experience of, of of seeing the enslaved Africans. I even had a, a very spooky experience. I won't get into there, but it was spooky, <laughs> and um, and I was told, okay, you, this is work that you have to do um, as a result of it. 
Um, I, 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 I applied to law school in my personal statement. I said that I want to build a case for reparations. And a couple of schools let me in <laughs> with, that, with that statement. But I chose um, New England School of Law, which ended up being the best place for me because what I discovered, I went to school, it was in Boston, and um, and it was very, very close to Rhode Island, which turned out to be the main place the slave traders did business in the United States. That was their business, slave trading. And uh, Boston, of course, you know, is, is uh, very close to, I mean, Massachusetts is very close to Rhode Island, and it was easy to get to and from the state to do research. So that's the beginning, beginning. But for the listening audience, what is that time period you're talking about, the burial ground you're going to Massachusetts? What is what is that time? Yeah, the burial ground was, I guess it was 92 or 93. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Going to law school was 90, well, I, actually, I, I went to law school on the way from finishing a graduate program, so it was 94 and 95. Interestingly, I should mention that my graduate program is where I, I, I tried to do some research on uh, reparations to actually fight for reparations, but um, I needed I needed the legal education. It just really wasn't possible. I I didn't understand a lot of the concepts. I I had to actually go to law school in order to to learn enough to be able to 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 build a case. Mm-hmm. So um so yeah so law school started in '95, and um by the time um I reached my second year of law school, well I, and just so you know yeah I studied at the University of Nairobi. That was that was at my first. That was my first summer after law school. Um, the second, let me see, let me get this right. Um, my second summer was um, in Cobra. Okay, I, I I did an internship for in Cobra, um, uh, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations of America, and that's because I had come come up with a case. Um, I thought I was going to be researching a case for reparations from the federal government. Um, But there was a decision um, known as Cato v. U.S., where a group of uh, Californians filed uh, a case against the government, federal government. But they really didn't get anywhere because the federal government has to waive its sovereign immunity in order for it to be sued. And there had not been a law passed. There was nowhere in uh, that the federal government had given permission to be sued on the issue of uh, slavery and reparations. So the case didn't get anywhere. So I, I decided to sort of examine other approaches to um, reparations. And I looked at private estates. One of the things that stood out to me in um, constitutional law, because this is the thing, I had to look at, this. law school was quite boring. I'm just going to tell you, it was a struggle to stay in there. But, um, but because I had a reason for being there, it was interesting. So every, every type of law that we were studying, constitutional law, I, I would examine, well, how, how can I use this 
to fight for reparations or if it was contract law, what here can be used or property law, you know, just whatever type of law I would look at what could be useful and uh, not really using the law in the way it's been traditionally used, but everything always out of the box. And um, so what I realized was um, the law of restitution. Um, and that, uh, there were there's kind of a couple of different areas where restitution came up. One of the, one of the areas that came up was in, in property law where someone misused an estate. They were responsible for overseeing a, an estate and they decided that they were going to take that money and invest it the way they wanted to. And this particular family was able to trace every dollar that was invested and um and disgorge it right mm. and it was based on the law of restitution meaning that no one should be able to profit from ill-gotten gains that it should all be disgorged and i said okay that sounds like something that we could use and so that's how i ended up focusing on like private estates that might have earned wealth from enslaving african people Okay, mm. so that's that's how that's how I ended up with that, and of course that's why we are called the Restitution Study Group because that's what we're doing. We are looking for private estates and corporations that that have um, that are currently investing ill-gotten gains because one of the things that's clear is that the law of restitution will allow you to to reach in and disgorge that wealth. Now, you don't even necessarily have to have laws on the book to help you with that. But in most states, you do have different types of laws to help you. And um, in, uh, in our litigation, we use some of them. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to let you guys ask some questions. Attorney Deidre, uh, before I pass <laughs> it over to Brother Richard, um, let me ask you this. Um in anything that we do, and especially uh, trying to fight for anything uh, for our people or for the uh, the uh, the wrongs that were done to our ancestors, uh, it takes a unified effort, and it's going to in the future, moving forward, it's going it's definitely going to take unified efforts. You brought the lawsuit against three companies initially in 2002, according to uh, some reports I read. It was against CX, CSX, Aetna, and Boston Fleet. Mm-hmm. And uh, the charge was uh, crimes against humanity and consumer fraud. Uh, you mentioned that those companies took the case that you were bringing seriously because they had 24 attorneys at court. And you had six. Uh, Johnny Cochran was with you, and Charles Ogletree. Talk about the the the, the uh, legal team. Give our audience a brief on how those legal minds, including yourself, came together on this and said we're going to deal with this together. Yeah. Well, let me just say no. Um Charles Ogletree and, and company, they were not 
they were not part of our case. They, okay. they did not, they did not work with us. Okay. Um, they declined to work with us. No. Okay. They definitely had an interest in, in the, the subject matter, but yeah, it's not, it's still not fully clear to me why they wouldn't work with it with, with us, but, um, but yeah. So, um, yeah. Would, now, then one question, were they attacking it from another, uh, uh, point of reference? Because from the, some of the, well, I mean, listen, you were there and you know, but from the thing, some of the writings I read that they were trying to, to, uh, attack this also, uh, in some form. Well, you know what? So help, so this, just help. Go there ahead. Are, yeah, there, there were, there were a lot of people who had different ideas uh, on how to pursue. In fact, I, I would say probably with, with um, Cochran and Ogletree, they might not have had a definite direction. And, and maybe at the beginning, but they formed something called the Reparations Coordinating Committee. Okay. Um, and um, just to give you an idea, when I actually began exposing companies, that was January of 2000. And, um, and I was out of law school for about six months at that point. Um, and um, by maybe September, they, the Reparations Coordinating Committee, September of 2000, I think we may have had the first meeting. They did invite me um, to be a part of the committee. And needless to say, fresh out of law school, I was in awe sitting okay. at a table with Johnny Cochran, Charles Ogletree. I mean, like people who, who I only read about as a student. Um, and, they, and wait a um, minute. And they invited you because of your work. They didn't invite they you. Invited just, go ahead. Because of my work. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. That's right. Yeah. So they were examining a, a few different approaches and, and one of, and one of them that they were considering was uh, corporations. And Cobra, you know, was at the table as well. And, and Cobra's primary focus then, as it is today, was the government. And I did mention that I was an Cobra intern while I was a law student, right? Yes. Yeah. I, was, I, I, was, I was the intern, and I did research around 13th Amendment for them. Um, but, um, yeah, so they were there. And then other, other uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the folks who were doing the research around Tulsa, they were at the table. And, and so there was, there was just, a, they didn't have a, a direction yet, but they were examining all possibilities. But, um, but when we asked them to, to work with us to join uh, our litigation, they declined. Um, they actually uh, wanted to pursue the, the, the ultimately pursued the Tulsa case okay. is, is what they chose. Um, and I think in part they felt that the elders were still alive and that they, because they were so old, that they wanted to make sure that that they were able to secure justice for them. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so that was one of the, the big concerns. There are other reasons I, I, I'm probably not privy to, but but that I know was something that they were concerned about. Okay. Yeah. Richard? But um, the, but the lawyers that we did have um, were very experienced with this particular type of case. In in fact, um, when I um, 
when I began to look for attorneys to work with me, um, I, I really focused on attorneys who had been engaged in the Holocaust cases because um, they had also begun to focus on companies um, that were complicit, existing companies that were complicit in the Holocaust. Okay, and they were kind of the same types of companies. In fact, in some instances, the very same companies that um, that that I had found documentation confirming their connection to slavery. For example, um, certain insurance companies um, and um, certain banks. So um, I, they definitely, you know, they definitely understood. Uh, how to fight and win because they had actually had a, a legal victory at the time. Um, I would say probably a few billion dollars was it, they were engaged in settlement talks around um, some of the some of the defendants actually in our case uh, making payments and the United States government had stepped in to assist them in that effort. So, um, so uh, yeah, so, so the attorneys, one of the main attorneys was um, Edward Fagan. He was very controversial. Even his own community didn't like him very much. He was not part of the, the establishment from his community. He was a Texas cowboy, pretty much. I mean, literally he was. Um, and... Um, and so, you know, so he had a, he had a lot of trouble with his own people, but I found him to be very dedicated and also very helpful in, in ensuring that we got the media attention that we needed. We also had attorneys from within our community, um, uh, uh, folks that um, that I knew out of Brooklyn. I, I used to live in Brooklyn. Um, people who are associated with the December 12th movement. Roger Wareham and his uh, his business partner, who I went to college with, Jomo Thomas. Uh, so that firm was was my main uh, team representing me in this particular action. Thomas Wareham, Thomas and Wareham was the, the law firm, um, and um, and they had been involved in many civil rights, social justice types of lawsuits, including the Central Park uh, uh, Darga case representing the wrongly accused, mm -hmm. and um, the Million Youth March, and many other things that just really are uh, uh, critical efforts for the community. Um, and um, let's see. And then there were some smaller firms, but Ultimately, there were about 20 plaintiffs, and um, gosh, I'm, I'm, I want to say six main lawsuits, but maybe it was a total of nine lawsuits that were consolidated, and we were all working together. Um, in fact, <laughs> the interesting thing about the plaintiffs is that they were people that that I would meet just uh doing things within the community, going to speaking engagements. One woman, her name is Ina Daniels Hurdle McGee, 
out of Texas, had done a lot of work just researching genealogy-type research on um, elders. And she would come with the most extraordinary stories. And, and she, she, her and her sister had been involved. They called them the civil rights twins. There's probably a lot of uh, photographs of them visiting for presidential campaigns and the, uh, Washington, D.C. at inaugurations and things of that nature. But, you know, she was probably someone who a lot of people might not pay attention to because some of the things she would say would just be hard to believe. Um, but, you know, I felt the work that I was doing was spiritual and I better pay attention to everything, <laughs> even if it doesn't sound right. Just, just investigate it. And sure enough, she would, she would bring the most unusual plaintiffs and uh, people, people to me who, who she felt would be plaintiffs. And they, and they always, they always, wanted to be a part of the litigation. I'll give you some examples just so you get an idea of some of the plaintiffs that were in the case. Ina herself was the great, great granddaughter of someone who was enslaved. Let me see. Let me make sure I get that right. Great, great. No, she was the great granddaughter of someone who was enslaved. Um, but she brought people who were, were actually enslaved. For example, uh, someone named Emma Marie Clark who had been enslaved, uh, and um, she was enslaved on a dairy farm. And her children were the offspring of rape because the dairy farmers not only had her tending the cows, but she was also raped. Now, um, her children, one was given away, and the other was forced to live with the cows. Okay, so this is a horrible story. But, um, but this Emma Marie was one of our plaintiffs, and she wanted reparations. And so what we did was we traced the business transactions of the dairy farmers, and we tracked that to the railroads and so on and so forth. So this is how we, we went about the research. Uh, another plaintiff that Ina brought to the case was Edley Bankhead, who was the oldest person in America at the time that he joined the litigation. And uh, Edley Bankhead, I think his family, they were tobacco farmers, and um, and he wanted reparations. So we did the same thing. We tracked the products that his family produced to different companies and uh, uh, transportation, and those companies became defendants in the case. Um, another sister who, uh, well, actually, Ina's own siblings, they were the, not siblings, but her aunt, her aunt and two uncles were the biological uh, children of someone who was enslaved. And so they were also plaintiffs, uh, some coming, two coming out of, San Francisco, and one coming out of Illinois, okay? So, you know, so plaintiffs were all over the place, and all of the cases were pulled together. Another sister, Antoinette Harrell Miller, coming out of Louisiana, we <laughs> call her, she's actually well-known today as the peonage, peonage detective. Yes, she's one it's of our former Dr. guests. You, you know Antoinette? Yes. Yes, yes, wonderful sister. Mm -hmm. She actually 
did a, she does a lot of genealogy research. And yeah. During the course of her research, she realized that there are probably some people who are still enslaved. Okay. Um, but the one family she brought into the case was the Wall family. And they were enslaved until the 1960s. Okay. Uh, and uh, there, there's a lot of documentation on, on them and, you know, uh, articles and some documentaries about them. Yes. But they became plaintiffs in the case. Um, and what we did was we tracked the plantation where they were enslaved in Emmett, Louisiana, to certain industries. And, um, and so those companies were brought into the litigation as well. So that's just a little bit of an idea of, of who, who were plaintiffs. Then there were people like me. I was a plaintiff because as a student, I used um, a company's loans, Fleet Boston Financial Corporation. Fleet Boston is today Bank of America, but back in the day, it was a company called the Providence Bank of Rhode Island. And um, as, as because I was a, a student loan customer, I was able to, to argue certain consumer fraud uh, uh, causes of action because one of the things the bank did before and they continue to do today is to mislead the public about their role in slavery. And in fact, right now, our primary campaign is targeting Bank of America because they refuse to tell what I think is probably the most unique history of any company I know um, with their unique history. They refuse to tell the truth about their history and, and their history through the Providence Bank of Rhode Island, which is that they engaged in the illegal enslavement of Africans. And while we know all of it was illegal, we know that all of it was unjust. Um, their illegal is based on the laws of the state of Rhode Island and the United States government. And the bank knew that they were aiding and abetting in the illegal enslavement of Africans because their shareholders were the slave traders. And, um, and so there are fines that they were supposed to pay, but they were able to avoid them because they engaged in, and when I say they, I mean these shareholders uh, engaged in um, what I would call, you know, like mafia type tactics, you know, literally attacking folks who might oppose their activities, uh, uh, kidnapping people who might want to try to fight them in court. And so they, they were able to, to shut down opposition to their activities and avoid being punished for their crimes. And so the bank was allowed to make money off the slave, their illegal slave trade. And to this day, um, the way that they were able to make this, this, this money was through their exclusive relationship with the United States. Okay. Say that again, uh, Antonio. Uh, it was through you... their exclusive relationship 
with United States Customs. Okay. They, when the bank was first established, the founder of the bank, John Brown, who is also the founder of Brown University, by the way, they're both in Rhode Island. Hmm. Um, John Brown managed to broker a deal with Alexander Hamilton uh, so that the bank would be the exclusive bank for United States Customs. And, um, you know, we have, we have primary records that basically give the list of the original shareholders, and those shareholders, most of them were slave traders. And um, what we were blessed to get probably at the beginning of my research in 2000, before we even knew that we would have to file lawsuits, we were able to get some primary documents from the actual slave slave trading voyages um, that show that show up in the U.S. Customs records. In other words, ships that had gone out to engage in the slave trade are showing up in the U.S. Customs records, paying tariffs and duties to the Providence Bank of Rhode Island, connected to the slave trading voyages. Okay, now. The, the, the significance of this is that the bank itself indirectly helped the slave traders engage in slave trading. For example, if a ship is going to be leaving, they, they typically would pay a fee before they left. And then they pay a little bit more when they return based on the activities they engaged in. Well, the bank would waive the departure fees, and then when the ships returned, they would make whatever payments. It was almost like a loan from the bank to engage in slave trading. Mm. Um, the bank would probably today deny that they had any idea that the slave traders were doing slave trading, except that we know that the slave traders are the shareholders for the bank, so they absolutely did know because it was them. <laughs> you understand? Mm. Anyway... What this is unique. I mean, of all the companies that I ever did any research on, I have never seen anything like this before. Now, what Bank of America is doing, due to these laws that have been passed, they call them slavery ever disclosure laws, um, they have an obligation to report on their history connected to slavery. And they have done that. However, they will not tell you about this. They refuse to tell anyone about this, and they will pretend that it does not exist. But it is a critical part of history because it rewrites history. You know, most folks think that black folks are here because slavery was a legal practice, but many of us are here based on illegal slave trading. Now, personally, I think that probably puts us in a whole different category of 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 folks in this country, some of us, you know, we're not descended from folks who were trade, part of some legal slave trade. Um, it was absolutely illegal. Anyway, they don't want to have to tell that part of the history because they don't want to have to pay the fines. And we believe that they should. And so that's one of the things we're demanding, that they pay the fines. And these fines are not even, this is not even the reparations that they owe. This is just the fines that they owe for engaging in the illegal slave trade, 
We want them to make it we, a, a trust fund that would help <laughs> repair us anyway. I mean, it wouldn't. It, it's not reparations, but we want a trust fund that will help to repair us anyway. It's money that belongs to us, and they owe it. So um, at this point, they're still lying about it, and with 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 every lie, they create another cause of action in present day law, consumer fraud, and fraud. And in fact, with our litigation, we filed the, the, the lawsuits around the country in 2002. By 2006, we had uh, a, a legal victory that a lot of people just weren't aware of. Uh, you know, I folks thought we lost because we didn't win money in the courtroom, but we actually won a very important decision and that is that a company that lies about their business history or aspects about their business in order to keep customers is guilty of fraud. This is the precedent that was created in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And um, that's a very conservative circuit. Judge Posner, who, if you've been to law school, you know he's the guy whose contract law we read. Judge Posner actually um, wrote the decision, and uh, and that's the law. Okay, that's the law. You lie about your role, keep customers, guilty of fraud, and that's what they're doing. So we we know that we have a really strong case for consumer fraud, and so we're asking customers if uh, they have an interest in uh, holding this company to their responsibilities. Uh, to, uh, to to reach out to us, contact us at our website, and um, uh, when we begin our litigation, we will be exploring whether or not it's class action or individual cases. But um, but the goal is to get them the trust fund created, but also to stop them from lying, to tell the truth, and stop cheating customers by lying. Because a lot of folks would not want to do business with them, knowing that they illegally played a role in slavery. And when I say they, it's their predecessor bank, but the bank is part of the company today. It's the Providence Bank of Rhode Island. Bank of America has other banks that did other stuff too. And they have paid a little bit of money um, in connection to being exposed for their role in slavery in general. But once again, this is particularly unique. And I think if folks or anything like me, it's particularly offensive that they will not tell the truth about this aspect. It tells you that there's something so ugly about it that they know that they ought not to be, uh, but it, it makes them afraid to tell people. They don't know what the impact would be as far as uh, customers are concerned. But I do believe a lot of folks will be offended if they don't do something about it. And, uh, and that's what they're getting away with. Customers who don't know what they did. Our guest this evening is, is an t- attorney, legal strategist, and human rights activist, Adiadra Farmer Prowlman. And we're discussing uh, the group that she's a uh, founder and executive director of the Restitution Study Group. And uh, we'll also be talking about uh, the group that she co chairs, the Organization of Tribal Unity, um, dealing with uh, reparations for our ancestors and damages that was done by this government. Uh, Richard. You know, I was I was thinking that 
Sister Dietrich, uh, as you were laying out um, the history, your personal history and the, and the history of the work that you're, you were doing, um, I came to the point as, you know, I, I guess we can, can want to go back because it sounds like um, for the time for awakening audience, we can be able, you can be able to utilize um, our help in the sense of support um, and, uh, and being able to present people who may be willing or have, think that they have a certain claim. But, um, but when you were dealing with the one question that came up to my mind, how important is history um, in general? It seems that you, in doing this legal case against these companies, um, yes, you have to search the record. But in general for us, you know, who are out here, who may be, how important it is for us to be um, conscious or informed about our personal history and as it relates to um, companies like Providence? Well, I, I think um, it's important because we, as number one, as consumers, we need to know um, who the companies are that we're dealing with, how they got started. For example, I'll give you another example, New York Life Insurance Company. Of the first 1,000 policies they wrote, 300 of them were on the lives of enslaved Africans, okay? The first policy that ever paid out was on the life of an enslaved African. Now, how, how so, this, so this is important. If you're doing business with New York Life Insurance Company, and I, I get, I, I, I'm at that age where I'm getting things from AARP, and I know that they're using New York Life Insurance policies. I know I ditched that in the garbage. I will never get a New York Life Insurance policy. Um, you, I just will not do business with some of these companies, um, especially if they have not paid reparations. And, and at this point, some of them have done nominal things, but none of them have paid. So, so that's what's important about history. You can make a, a choice based on the knowledge. Um, same thing with Bank of America. I'm telling you a funny thing, though. I, I, I didn't necessarily choose to do business with Bank of America, but it's interesting how I have been made a customer of Bank of America in a very strange way. But needless to say, I'm certainly in a position to be a plaintiff at this point. Not, not 100% by choice, um, but that is, uh, that is the case. Um, folks can make choices every day, you know, and, and you have to be informed to make them. So that's, that's the importance of history. You, you don't support companies that offend you, especially if they're not carrying out their, their proper civic duties, con uh, basic hum humanity, things that they can do to make a difference. You know, kinds of things that the descendants of enslaved Africans uh, have to endure today are very often related to the enslavement of our ancestors. And I want to say very often, I mean our whole condition in this country. I mean our presence here, period, you know, is related to our enslavement. Now, another um, aspect of this is just understanding how slavery was practiced. Um, you know, a lot of folks, you see things you don't fully understand. Like, for example, if you saw the movie Amistad and you saw the scene where folks were being dumped, dumped into the ocean, um, you might not fully understand what that was about. But that was about the practice of insurance for slave trading voyages. 
Well, that's Lloyd's of London, okay? And folks are doing business with Lloyd's of London, um, you know, either directly through banking or other types of financial products. But we need to know um, that they had a society of insurance brokers that wrote insurance policies for, I'll give you an example, Rhode Island slave traders. So if they, the slave trader would write, would get the policy, and they might be engaged in the trade for a family or themselves. When they leave Africa with a ship full of enslaved people, folks who did not choose to be on the ship, if folks got sick during the voyage, and there was a chance that they would die once they reached the shore in the Americas, the, the slave trader had to make a decision. If we reach the shore with these people and they die, we don't get any money for them. But if we dump them in this ocean, even though they're still alive, Lloyds of London, they're going to pay us for this life. And so that's why folks were dumped in the ocean. And, and, we're all over the we're all over that Atlantic, because that was the practice. Um, there's another case, the Zong case. That's that's what the case was about, and that was when the United Kingdom or the British uh, Empire began to engage in ending the slave trade with with the Zong case, where they learned of this practice by the insurance companies of dumping uh, living people in the ocean to ensure that they collect their their profits on shore or you know whether it's from the insurance policy they just this is what they did and anyway so that's um this is part of the importance of history so we know which companies were doing this and and we and we don't do business with them we we let them know that this we expect you to to right this wrong you know they grew wealthy off this and you know, once again, with that law of restitution, they are not entitled to the ill-gotten gains. Mm. We we are the proper heirs to that wealth. And 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 you and you made a distinction. I I, I did want to follow up on the um, providence as far as we got this side. So and because you mentioned um, John, I think you said John Brown, the um, the founder of Brown University, and Alexander Hamilton. We're talking mm-hmm. about activity that's going on, and let me make sure I'm clear of this, um, in relationship to timeline, is activity that's going on before 1808 or after 1808? Yes. This is activity that's going on before 1808. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But Mm -hmm. also, you raised that um, activity was going on by companies, um, particularly what you call the illegal slave trade. So that meant that this is activity that was going on after 1808. And you inferred that it may create a different type of legal positioning. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't have. Okay, let me be clear. Let me be clear. Mm -hmm. There were two different um, slave trade prohibition acts. One from the state of Rhode Island from the 1700s, something like 1787. Um, There was also a law from the United States government that was something like from 1794 or something like that. I, 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 
I can give you the specifics. I don't have the dates in my head. But, um, but these, uh, these different slave trade acts and um, what they, they prohibited was certain types of slave trading. Okay, so let me just see. For the, from the United States, it was 1794. And from the state of Rhode Island, it was 1787. Mm. Okay. Now, these laws prohibited certain types of slave trading. Well, the state of Rhode Island prohibited all slave trading, period, from 1787. Yet, that was the primary business of the people of Rhode Island, okay? So when we crunch our numbers, we, we are looking at all of the people who were enslaved between a certain period of time, okay? So from all of Rhode Island, from the, the time periods after uh, 1787, every, everybody that they enslaved was illegal. So they owe a certain amount of fines for that. And the fines are per person enslaved and per ship, okay? Mm. Um, for the United States government, there's certain kinds of slave trading that was, was illegal. For example, in particular, you could only go to Africa and bring someone direct to the United States, okay? So that was legal, but that's not what the Rhode Island slave traders were doing. And the reason why they were not doing that is because it was illegal to engage in the slave trade in Rhode Island. So what did they do? They would go to Africa and then bring the Africans to the Caribbean. Okay. Mm. Okay. So that's how they did it. And then they would come back with their rum to Rhode Island. And they would pay their duties on their rum and products that they brought back from the Caribbean. You see? Mm. So that's how, so that's how they did it. Uh, now, they obviously didn't anticipate that the day would come when folks would care enough to track them down, or maybe they didn't care about what was going to happen later on. They knew they were controlling the Rhode Island courts and the people at that time. So they did what they just did whatever they wanted to do, and the bank allowed it. Now, what happened was... Um, Professor Jay Cocktree wrote this book um, called The Notorious Triangle, and it's about Rhode Island and their illegal slave trading. And so in the back of that book, you will get all of the slave trading voyages. He actually traveled all around the country to every port to collect all the records, Mm. and he put them together, and he created this database, okay? And that's what I'm using. That's one of the databases that I use to track the the companies. I, I used it to track Barclays as well. Um, another company engaged in slave trading and lying about it. You know, there was a lot of controversy when they were putting up the arena and they were lying. And so my institute actually did the research that forced them to tell the truth. Um, and, we, you know, we found... <laughs> I can't. I can't even recall the the, the total number. The, this, the documentation is online. It's 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 there. You know, it's public information now. But um, we tracked the the trading to the the founders of the bank and the bank itself. 
So it's clear at this point they're not lying, and they're even talking about paying reparations. So I don't know what exactly they have in mind, but but we'll be in touch with them about that. But yeah, so just as far as the Providence Bank of Rhode Island, that's that's the kind of stuff that they did. Um, so they owe for violating the Rhode Island state law and violating the U.S. law, the one from the 1790s, 1794 to be exact. And they violated that law. I mean, the documentation that we have is, is probably up to 1808. Um, after that, I, I, I have to look and see uh, all of the dates. But, um, but yeah, so this is what we're looking at. And just for that little bit of time, like we don't have, we don't have the full um, customs records. We don't have everything, but what we, we were able to only collect about 28 voyages. Okay, there, there are hundreds of voyages, but we were only able to collect 28 voyages worth of documents. And that little bit of time, we crunched the numbers, what they would owe in today's money, it's $35 billion. Okay, just, just for 28 voyages that may have enslaved, I'm thinking it's about 1,200 people, $35 billion. And I think probably for that whole time period, at least the time period that we, we are targeting, we're talking about 41,369 people, okay? Um, that's, that's what we're looking at now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of money that they owe. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. These are the fines that they were able to avoid. Okay. I, I don't know if it's because of, of what of your work um, directly, but, um, and you made um, reference to it, this slavery disclosure law, but I know. Richard. Came out about any company that did. Wait wait a minute, say that over again, Richard. We didn't hear anything you said. Oh, the, in Philadelphia, that slavery disclosure law, I think you have made reference to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in Philadelphia, they passed a, a slavery disclosure law in 2005. And it's the Philadelphia City Ordinance 171-104, um, paragraph 2 in 2005, of 2005. But one thing they were, um, I heard from the local in Cobra at one point in time, and, and this is a, that the question of it has the law, but it, the enforcement mechanism wasn't there. But I don't know if that become that that slavery disclosures laws that are and you made reference that it be at different I guess it's in different city states or whatever. Uh, is that because of do you do would you say after the work that you did that that became a tool that you noticed was being passed, if at all? Yeah, the the slavery ever disclosure laws have their their origin with Tom Hayden, Senator Tom Hayden out of California. He actually heard about my exposing Aetna and and could see that I was struggling getting companies to tell the truth. And so he actually, um, insurance companies in particular, because New York Life was another company I was wrestling with, as well as American International Group. So he actually introduced the first ever slavery era disclosure law that was introduced well what i i I exposed etna in 
February. I wanted I wanted the exposure to be in Black History Month. And um I guess the the story broke the last day of the month and and by the next month Tom Hayden had introduced that bill and he had reached out to me for as much information as I could possibly provide him. And and it used to be called the Aetna Bill. The original name of the bill was the Aetna Bill, but Aetna actually lobbied to have their names removed from the bill. Okay, but I I have drafts of the bill when it was called the Aetna Bill. Um, But, yeah, that was the first slavery ever disclosure law. And the idea was to help to help with the, the effort to, to expose the companies and, and pressure them. Uh, folks believe that just that they might be willing to do something right just from being exposed. And I want to say that Aetna actually made all kinds of promises to me. And, I, and one of the things I, I, I made sure they knew was that they were not just speaking to me, but that they were speaking to reporters as well. Um, you know, I never wanted it to be said that I was trying to broker anything for myself. Oh, they, wait a minute. Was, <laughs> wait a minute, Attorney Deidre. They they made personal promises to you? Oh, no, no personal promises. When I, when they made promises, I mean they made promises for the community because that's okay, all okay, I was asking Okay, about. okay. I was just, yeah. I mean, no, I'm not talking, referring to you, but I'm talking about what they would do. Okay, all right, go oh, ahead. Oh, yeah, no, they, would, they promised to um, ink, uh, they promised to um, pay reparations in the form of uh, university scholarships and uh, and grants. This is what they said. And, um, you know, so, I, you know, I was speaking to uh, a reporter explaining it all, and then he, you know, would get back to them. Um, and up until, I guess, it, was, it became clear that, you know, this, this is picking up steam and folks are jumping on board. And when they realized they were going to have to do something, that's when they started backing down. And saying, oh, we already give so much. And, you know, I, I think, I don't know, I'm not sure what they were thinking at first. Um, I, even got the, I, I even got the impression that they were serious, you know. But, um, but to this day, you know, as far as I know, they have not done anything. Okay. Um, so, you know, Edna is, is not off the hook. <laughs> okay. Um, most of these companies are not. Uh, off, none of them are off the hook because none of them really gave what they could give and what they should give. And at the time, you know, we were at a different time in this struggle. Um, uh, you know, this, it was the beginning. That's why I say this work popularized reparations because prior to that, I think what was happening was a lot of of the activism was perceived as uh you know, radical militants. You know, you know all kinds of extremists, and you know, it was all it was all categorized in that way. But when these modern day companies had to face this history, you know, it became something a little bit more real. For example, prior to that, folks were saying the Southern planters are dead. You know, all, you know the, the people, the company, the, the, not even companies, they weren't thinking about existing companies. They were just thinking everybody's gone now. The only place this money could come from is the government. But when they realized these billion and trillion dollar companies are still around. I, I remember doing the show, um, what is this guy's name? I did one of these talk shows, Don, Donahue, Phil Donahue. 
the Angry White Men show. By the end of that Angry White Men show, the Angry White Men were saying those companies should pay. You know, so even white folks uh, can agree that these companies need to pay. And and so it it sort of changed. It began to change the way people perceived, you know, the the, the reparations issue. Oh, we have companies that are around that made that money. They should pay. <laughs> and of course, I I feel the government should pay too. I and I always felt that. If companies had to pay, the government is going to step in because quiet as it's kept, black members of Congress, they get political donations from, you know, some of these same companies. You know what? And and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's where I was going at. I want to talk about it from that angle. But let me let me get a couple calls. Let's go to Toronto, 647. Toronto, are you there? Toronto? Yes, sir. Question or comment for our guest? Oh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, first of all, I wanted to say that, uh, Dave, I want to ask you about David Walker, not the David T. Walker that played If You Think You're Lonely Now on, on the Bobby Womack song, not that the guitarist, but the David Walker who did David Walker's appeal. I think it was a, a, an appeal to to the colored citizens of the world. I think he wrote that in 1829. And I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, the whole question of, 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 of reparations. Did he, was he one of the first uh, person to, to, to call for reparations? And he was talking about the, Af- the African citizens of the world. And do you think, uh, what do you think about the group Eidos is talking about getting reparations only for African people in the United States and not talking about uh, getting Af- uh, reparations for Africans uh, worldwide. Okay. Well, I don't really know um, uh, the David Walker. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. I don't know the appeal. Um, if you could give me some content, I, I can give oh, you. Oh, he an wrote opinion. an appeal in in, in, in 1829. He wrote okay. an appeal okay. to the to the citizens of the world, calling for reparations. And he was, uh, I know Richard could probably fill you in on this, but uh, he was killed. I think maybe a year later, two years at right. the most. Well, okay, I I hear what you're saying. The date is really the critical point. 1829, so he definitely predated Callie House, who headed up the first mass movement for reparations, and that was in the late 1800s, right? Okay, Callie House. Okay, so her movement was at the time called the ex-slave pension movement, okay? Um, So, um, yeah, so... Mass movement versus an individual demand, you know, they're all critical. I'm I'm certain that there were other individual demands prior, but probably the largest movement um, would have been under Cali House. And uh, Cali House was, uh, what what happened was the ex-slaves used to raise money through the mail. And so that made... Cali House and others vulnerable to mail fraud charges. Mail fraud charges. Did they um, get Marcus Garvey on that? Absolutely. That's that's mm-hmm. the way they shut down mass movements at that time. They 
and, and note the Cali House went to jail for leading. Well, first of all, she did lawsuits. She did lawsuits. Also, and these were lawsuits against the government. Um, she also worked with legislators and uh, uh, lobbyists to push an ex-slave pension law. The law was to receive a pension for ex-slaves to receive a pension for the service that they provided to the nation for free for for a few centuries, okay? Centuries. So, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and um, part of the, the thinking behind the slave pensions also came from the fact that many African folks who were enslaved had fought in the war on the Union side, and they had multiple families because of the way we were used to breed more humans, right? That was a business practice. And so the, if you had more than one claim being pursued for a, a, of a, a pension for a Union soldier, nobody got paid. And so there were mm-hmm. quite a number of these pensions. In fact, something probably worth researching today to find out how much of that money never got paid to black people. That's a that's a good source for reparations in and of itself. I suspect if you, the Cowley House research documents could probably help you. It's part of a record group. The, the ex-slave pension movement is part of a military record group because, because of those soldiers who never got their pensions, just so you know. And so, um, yeah, um, they never got the money, and Cali House wanted to collect that and get pensions for all of us who were still alive who had been enslaved. Um, but she was um, she was pursued by the government for uh, what they call um, fraud because she was trying to persuade the uh, uh, the ex enslaved people that such a effort could be successful. Okay. In other words, I never, yeah, I'm sorry, I never heard of her. That, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you pulled my coat to her. Oh yeah, well there is uh, Mary Frances Berry wrote a book called My Face Is Black Is True. It's the story of Callie House. Uh, she is yes. I mean, one of the interesting things about the reparations movement, a lot of people don't know, and Mary Frances Berry talked about it, is that it the movement has had a lot of women up front, and Callie House was one of them. Queen Mother Moore was another one, and then I'm when just you look at about and, Queen Mother Moore, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but and, and Queen Mother Moore of course followed Marcus Garvey. Um, Marcus Garvey actually picked up Callie House's chapters when she went to jail, so he his his initial uh, organization was coming straight from Callie House, okay, and that that's something that's addressed in uh, Mary Frances, Frances Berry's book, My Face is Black is True. And um, another thing I would like to, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no I wanted to say that, uh, you know, a lot of people t- t- talk about, uh, you know, Marcus Garvey being the first person to advocate going back to Africa, having a, rep- a, a repatriation movement. But, you know, before that you had uh, Henry McNeil Turner, and and before that you had even 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 before Henry McNeil Turner, there was 
Africans calling, talking about going back to Africa, not only in the United States and Canada, but throughout the Western Hemisphere in the English, French, Spanish, Dutch, and uh, you know the, the the whole everywhere we were, were we were taken, there was some of us that talked about you know going back to where we originally were taken from. Mhm. Mhm. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, now the other thing you mentioned was Ados, and um, yes, I don't really know. Hmm. I said yes, ma'am. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about Ados. I do know that they are primarily interested in reparations for descendants of enslaved Africans. In America. I, yeah, in America. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I mean, if you're saying that all reparations that should be paid anywhere in on this planet must come to descendants of enslaved Africans, well, that that's, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong because this is not the only place the descendants of enslaved Africans are. Um, you know, we were dropped off all over the Americas. And so, you know, if that's all they want to do, that's fine. I mean, you know, you can't do everything. There are organizations <laughs> in the Caribbean that are that are that are, are only focused on reparations for people in the Caribbean. And in the UK, they have folks that are only focused on reparations for descendants of enslaved Africans in the UK. So there's nothing wrong with that. I, I I don't really I don't see a problem with that. That's what they want to do. Um I I want to do something maybe a little bit different and it's only because of the kind of research that I've done. I used to think just like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really did. You know, I remember doing radio <laughs> shows in two thousand up until and up until I really got to study the transatlantic slave trade database. And I understood then that these companies that I'm going after, they, like a company like Bank of America, um, the slave traders that they, they aided and abetted were bringing folks to the Caribbean, okay? So these fines don't just belong to us. Okay, they belong to folks who ended up in the Caribbean too. So uh, you know, because you, you following me, so you know it's, it's you know. So I, I don't know who the target is for Ados. If they're looking at you know the United States government and that you know, I don't really know. I don't really know their whole argument, but I don't think it's, there's anything wrong with them working for the part of this thing that they want to work for. Yeah, no, not at all. But I, but I'm aware of the fact that companies like Barclays and Lloyd's of London and Bank of America and you know, uh, even, uh, gosh, just just many of the companies that they, they were engaged in the international slave trade, and so we ended up. But in I'm a listening. Lot of I'm listening. Places. I'm listening to you, and you sound. As if you're talking an international situation as opposed to just uh, talking about, to quote unquote, the tribe of Shabazz, the, the American Negro. Well, us too. Us too. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that tribe, but if you say the American <laughs> Negro, yeah, I know what you're talking about then. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we're all over. And I'm going to tell you, if, if it's okay that I mentioned the other organization that we've created. Really, because we realized we need this other organization. We filed another lawsuit um, in 2004 
Uh, and this particular lawsuit charges genocide. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, and, and, and it's really based on like research around that case. This really helped me to understand, you know, how global this, this is. And we do DNA testing. Um, we test African nationals who want to know, who want to help us to know who our real families are. We don't just tell you what your tribe is. We find your cousin, okay? And that's something that the org- our organization does for free. Uh, you have to have taken a certain uh, DNA test at this time because that's, that's just where we started our database because we found it to be the most user-friendly. So, um, so African nationals, are in the database and and we we know these people i know them from my work in africa and um so we what what how we do it is this we choose people who know who who have who were born in a particular country and both of their parents were born in africa an, an african country and the biological parents uh, of, of grandparents also born in Africa. So we're talking about, we want three generations of people born on the continent, okay? We make okay. sure that they know their ethnic groups, and there's often more than one, and that they know at least one of the ethnic languages, okay? Um, so we want people who can actually teach us something about who we are. Okay, this is a form, we call it self-repair, but really we started doing this before this kind of detail was even possible. When we filed our lawsuit in 2004, the most that we were able to get was the, the, the tribal group. And that's because the organization that did the DNA testing, that's all they provide. And they still only pretty much provide that, okay? We don't use them. They don't. They don't like us too much. I, I read in a book they they want to distance themselves from the work that that we do, and that's okay. Um, but um, they don't like us. I was. I would say that black folks. But it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Wait a minute. They, who, is that, who is that that don't? don't I, like- I, I'm not going to name their name, but I'm just going to tell you that was the only research available to us in 2004. But other people, they're not black have much more detailed information and their research, their kinds of their documentation allows us to actually find our actual family members. And that's what we do. So if you visit our website, you'll see the director of the research, Mohammed Fofana, he's an African brother, um, who um, who who was reunited with his cousin. And you can see how much they look alike and how much they have in common just in terms of careers, you know, well, that's what Could I ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hogging too, I'm, I'm hogging too much time. Uh, did you, did you trace your, your, what, what, what group will you trace back to? I, I, my grandmother on my mother's side was traced back to, to the, your, your Yorubas and uh, her two names were Ola May. Those are two Yoruba names. Wow. Wow. You see, there you go. Um, I was, um, I was traced, um, okay, by the African company 
they traced me, my maternal line, they called it the mitochondrial DNA, was traced to the Mendy of Sierra Leone. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So, um, so that, those are the folks from the Amistad story. They are Mendy from Sierra Leone. Um, now, so you, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess with you. You might knock me out. You said Mendy. <laughs> they were some tough folks, right? Oh really? Oh, I don't see. I don't know. There's, I, there's so much I have to learn. But I'll tell you, I am working on something. And it's funny you would say that because I, through the other DNA research, the one that we're using, I, I was able to find my uh, Mendy cousin from Sierra Leone. Okay, this is the only <laughs> African cousin I was able, able to find. So I actually know this sister, and she's actually, believe it or not, in the military in the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at some point she came here, and she's, she's in the military here, but all of her family is still in Sierra Leone, and they are Mendy. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. So note that the African company, they give you excellent information, but the other company helps you find your own people, you know, which is fascinating, you know. We didn't, no, we didn't really I'm... think it was going to be possible. I mean, we, we began doing uh, the DNA testing in 2015. With I don't know if you know uh, Queen Mother Dr. Delois Blakely, she was a faithful servant to Queen Mother Moore, um, and uh, you know you didn't see Queen Mother Moore without seeing Delois Blakely. When when Queen Mother was in a wheelchair, Dr. Blakely was pushing her around all over the world, all over the world. So um, so Dr. Blakely. Um, and, and her organization, New Future Foundation, along with the Restitution Study Group, came up with the idea to do these tests. And we, we formed the organization, the Tribe of Unity, because that's what we want to do. We want to actually unify people with their tribes. I mean, that's really the goal. Um, and, you know, we actually can do much more than that, I mean, with the kind of technology. And it's just it's the most remarkable thing to to. Uh, to to connect the families because you know in some instances you know you know it's as if you know they were never separated and and you know there's so much that they have to share with each other there's a lot of joy there's a lot of pain in some instances uh, I'll tell you uh, in some instances a lot of uh, the Africans are afraid okay they're afraid. Mm-hmm that folks will be angry with them and uh, they hesitate sometimes, even though they signed up for this, there's a lot of fear. Um, it's a lot too. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility. You have a lot of educating to do, you know, is, is, is what it comes down to. But some folks are so dedicated and so patient. I mean, there's one sister out of the Gambia, she shopkeeper out there, she takes her time, and she any cousin that wants to reach out to her, she just has the time and patience and love. It's just amazing. It's amazing. But the thing that we find fascinating is how much the families still have in common. We don't realize that even though we were on plantations, we there are certain skills and specialties that our families had that we came here with, and we kind of still, and they, they continue on within the families uh, very often. You know, folks who, who are griots, who are coming from the griot class of folks, 
you know, very often the the, the family members here are musicians or um or professors right. or both. Mm-hmm. Or both. So they're you know, they're 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 sort of continuing with the tradition. Folks who are straight up entrepreneurs coming from those tribal groups known for, you know, being business people, their cousins over here are doing the same kinds of things. It's, it's it's fascinating, you know. The sister that I was talking about, she's part of this tribe that's really involved with environment. That she's from the Jola people of of the Gambia. And the the president, the former president, Yaya Jame, was also Jola, and they're really into the environment, into herbs and all of that kind of stuff. And her cousin, who was out of New York headed up like one of the major environmental organizations. And it was just like, my God, this, you know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. This is real. Okay. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, um, it's fascinating to see how folks are, although we're separated, we are so connected. And this is where, you know, where we come, why we have this argument of genocide, because one of the things that folks, you know, they want to say, what is your injury? You're not hurt. It didn't happen to you. All of this stuff. You know, even when we were doing the litigation, we didn't really feel this in the way that we needed to feel it. But afterwards, you know, for me, it's been uh, an an ongoing spiritual evolution. It's been research. It's been all kinds of stuff going on where I realized that that is a profound loss. And it's so easy to overlook. It's overlooked regularly but i used to do some speaking engagements and i would ask you know for folks to raise their hand if they know where their their what country they're from you know like where Mm -hmm. where their ancestors are from and you know black folks we couldn't you know we could never raise our hand to that and and not recognize that that's a serious injury you know uh and on so many different levels because it's land this loss is family members were disconnected from, it's health, diet, things that work for your body because, you know, believe it or not, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of foods we eat, other folks have had 10,000 years for their bodies to evolve to eat those foods. We, 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 our bodies are not designed for certain things. We don't even make enough enzymes in our mouths to digest certain things. You know, other groups have had 10,000 years to evolve, to adjust to that. So we end up having all kinds of health problems, not knowing what we're supposed to eat. But if we had a connection to our African ancestor, because we're only talking about 200, 300 years, we would know what we should be eating. (laughs) You know, so these are are real injuries. You know, folks, you know, they want to, you know, so you, someone asked earlier today about the um, about history. Well, this is this is the importance of knowing that. I know a lot of people don't want to do the DNA testing, but it, it's uh, it's important. I'll tell you that. Um, you know, you you really need to know what what kind of food you're supposed to be eating because if you're coming from you know Senegal or if you're coming from Nigeria, you know, folks ate different kinds of things, you know, grains that don't have gluten in them, <laughs> you know, you know, they would taste quite lovely if you, if you knew how to prepare them or even knew that you should prepare them. Um, we, we need to know these things. 
Toronto, well, I, thanks for I your think, uh, I think you, you've given me uh, so much time. I, I think I'll shut up and let someone else talk. But uh, <laughs> could you put me on hold, El- Elliot? Yes, sir. Thanks for your contribution. Thank you very much. Let's go to 267. Yes, uh, Brother Elliot, Brother yes, Richard. Yes, sir. You have, a, you have a wonderful guest, Counselor. You're wonderful. That guy who's talking about the amount of time he took, I could listen to y'all all night. I mean, <laughs> God, I mean, that's great. But I'm, I'm going to say this to you, sister, you know, that um, I've had some friends who went to law school for a purpose. Now, listen to what you're saying. You know, I had a friend of mine, Cheney University graduate, and um, as a young man, he got caught with a gun charge. He changed his major around a criminal justice undergrad, became a Howard University graduate from law school, and he had a, a vigor in him to be a criminal lawyer. He did it for a certain mm-hmm. amount of time because of his experience. And mm-hmm. he worked at State Farm. I said, I wonder if he knows the history about State Farm because he might turn around and do what you're doing now. But, <laughs> right. And I think about a Thurgood Marshall. I'm a Lincoln grad. I, I love Thurgood. How, you know, from, from Lincoln, that he had a purpose. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably spent a lot of time as a criminal lawyer in the South. People don't know that. Excellent criminal lawyer before he, he uh, was nominated as a judge in support and also fighting those Supreme Court cases. Become a justice, one of the greatest justices you ever had. But I listen mm-hmm. to you because my other friends who went to law school, they said, Tim, they said, they scare you first year. He said, the second year you want to get out, then you want to pass the bar. Mm-hmm. And But they said to, to something that's different from you, they said they loved it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they like to just move court competition and professors and, you know, the professors that taught them and things of that nature. But mm-hmm. I respect you because I hear in you, you became who you were supposed to be, and you are that now. And your contributions <laughs> of what you do as your studies. Like I had a professor that told me, he said to me, Tim, it's more than just a course to you. I said, it is. I live what I do. I mm-hmm. write about what I do and speak about it. And mm-hmm. I hear that in you. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, a friend of mine, he's a comedian, he said, Tim, I didn't get into show business for money. He said, I loved it first. Mm-hmm. And then the money came. So, but he has money now, you know, so the money came, that was important. But he loved it. And I like to hear that from you. That we have people that are dedicated to fight for our people for a cause. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, as opposed to, you, you're not going to sell out. This is who you are. And you have these people that get to these positions and they're turning away from a fight, a necessary fight. I just heard you talk about Cochrane. I heard you talk about Ogletree. I learned something mm-hmm. that your position was different from theirs. Their fight was on another level. And we need to be fighting on all levels. Politically, socially, economically. And I had a good time, good time talking to Johnny Cochran. We had a good introduction of on and on and on. I never met Professor Ogletree, but I used to like their research and what they did. I'll put you up there with them. You're marvelous. I never met you. But, and you say, <laughs> where did you go undergrad? Where did you go undergrad? Oh, where did you go um, undergrad work? Undergrad, Brooklyn College, City University yeah. of New York. Very good. I'm, in, I've been, I'm impressed with you right now. I like Jeffries. You know Jeffries, the congressman? Yes. I like oh, Jeffries, yes, I met too. him. I met him. Yes, yes. Right and at I, the beginning. I, I, of course, I like his uncle, Dr. Linda. <laughs> so I make those connections, you know. Um, yeah, and I think he has a cousin who's a law professor, too. Who is yeah. uh, his, mm-hmm. his nephew? Really? Uh, well, no. I, Congress, was it? Congress, yes. Jeffrey. 
Okay. Yes. He has a he has a cousin who is a law professor in in New Jersey. Oh, he has a cousin. Okay. Now, yes. You yourself are a practicing attorney, without a doubt. No, I'm not, believe it or not, I'm not a practicing attorney. I'm I'm a legal strategist, but I don't practice law. But I okay. I find people who who will do the strategies that I come up with. Who, who very good. Who understand and 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 carry out the the the. So, the, the so I have a question for you. Stuff. Yeah. Would you be willing to teach law at like Howard, North Carolina Central, or Florida A and M? Well, I'm going to tell you, I would love to. Uh, Howard University did not accept me. I applied there. They didn't take me in. Talking about reparations, I'm just going to let them know. Yeah, I'm the one you rejected. Um, Are you serious? I'm dead serious. What about like a Florida A and M who just recently became ABA accredited, like a North Carolina Central, uh, any of them? I'm pretty sure, or uh, North Carolina. Well, I mean, I would love to come in and lecture. I would come in and do, you know, a a guest appearance. I'm I'm not trying to, you know, I'm kind of quasi-retired and just focusing on on this work for the the community. But I'm I'm happy to to visit a campus, whether it's virtual or in person. I'm happy to do that. So, yeah, I'll even go to Howard University. (laughs) Okay. And I'm going to be, wherever you are, I'm going to try to listen to you. Any books out? Any books? I do have actually a screenplay, believe it or not. There is uh, something on Amazon. You can check it out. It's actually uh, a screenplay based on my journey, okay? I, I, it's, it's called Dry Bones, and it's, it's okay. because, uh, like uh, Ezekiel from the Dry Bones Prophecy, my work started on, on, in this in a burial ground, Okay. And uh, and so many of my experiences sort of mirrored Ezekiel, and I realized that this is a dry, a modern day dry bones story. And, so his uh, name the book is Dry Bones. Dry Bones is the screenplay. Yes. Okay. Thanks Thank for you. your contribution, brother. It's a screenplay. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's go. But to- um, one of the things I, I wanted okay. to mention is like with the with the genocide um, argument, um, what we realized is. Uh, we, we filed the genocide case. Our lawyer was ill. We had to pull the case. Um, it, was a, it was a tough argument for anyone who didn't fully appreciate the cause. So we, we couldn't really replace that attorney. Uh, but what I wanted to mention was that there is actually a law in the book. Unlike the general reparations argument, for the genocide case, there is an act where the United States government waives its sovereign immunity. It's called the Proxmire Act. Okay, so there is a place. Proxmire. Proxmire Act, and it's named after um, a senator, Proxmire, who um, I think probably for several years, every single day. This is because because the United States government had not uh, become signatory to the genocide convention every single day he would lobby he would he would he would hold he would he would discuss that we should join the genocide convention that we should codify the genocide convention but uh senator proxmire and i guess it was probably in 1988 that we finally codified the genocide convention and uh, and it was named proxmire act and let me just say 
that the Proxmire had passed away by that point, and you, you can't even imagine who it was that signed, who carried the torch for, for Proxmire, um, but President Joe Biden. So it became Joe Biden's bill um, in the Senate, and uh, that's who got it passed. So the Proxmire Act is the genocide convention uh, where we can argue that we have been uh, essentially we've been uh, we are victims of genocide that our ethnic and national identities have been erased that we are continuously subjected to conditions that are designed to bring about our destruction um, and these are things that we go through on a daily basis if folks want to step back and just imagine the conditions that we live under any other group living under these conditions let's say for example children who immigrated to the, to the United States illegally at the border. Um, they're living under conditions that uh, folks find offensive, and I don't even know what law they're looking at to pay them $450,000. And I personally feel they should be paid for the, the injuries that they're suffering from, but these are injuries that are very similar to genocide. I don't know if they're using the Genocide Convention, but to be separated from your families in that way, separated from your culture. These kids probably don't even speak Spanish anymore. There's probably so much that they're going through. Bottom line is, this is this is who we are. This is what we've experienced. And, uh, you know, I just think it's just amazing that uh, the president, the, the president today is the one that, that moved this bill through and got it signed after Proxmire passed away. The only thing about the law that is a problem is that it's the, the Department of Justice that would actually uh, enforce this law because it's a criminal law. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, there's a lot of research that we have to do around how we, we a, are able to utilize a criminal law uh, in, uh, in the courts today. But, some, you know, something, something to know. In fact, I'll just say the kinds of killings that, uh, police officers are engaged in and others killings of black people fall within the the, the realm of the of the Pacmai Act, you know. And and for each injury that one suffers under that law, you're supposed to get paid half a million dollars, you know. Um, and and folks can get time in jail for violating it as well. I think it's up to 20 years. So you know, I I would love to see in some of these police brutality brutality cases that the Proxmire Act is used by the Department of Justice, you know. I, I apologize for my ability not to spell, but his, his first, how do you spell his first, how do you spell, spell his name? P-R-O-X as in xylophone, mm. M as in Mary, I-R-E, Proxmire. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yes, the Proxmire Act of, eight, of 1988. Let me go to uh, 678 in uh, Atlanta. 678? 678, are you there? 678 must have stepped away. Let's go to 44. 44. 44. Yeah, I'm just listening, man. So much information out there, man. Because even with... uh, 
lot of my people was indigenous already over here, Native Americans, so they kind of jacked us up, too. So, I mean, they got to pay. Like I told y'all last week with the numbers, man, they made $30 million a year times 400 is, is 12 trillion times five for 500 years is 15 trillion. So they got to pay up, man. They got to pay up. And uh, we just keep strong, keep busting out the information, man. And I'll be quiet and listen, man. I don't, I, I don't want to get all pissed off at these demons. But uh, well, listen, I enjoy the show, man. Because huh? you, you've done some research. Uh, uh, join the restitution study group. Team up and, and compile your research. Yes, sir. Once I, I get an email, because I've been back and forth on another phone call, so I didn't get all the complete. But I got the genesis of the show. So uh, once you... Uh, I get an email because I did contact the other uh, my man that was on there last week, man. So he sent me some stuff. But anyway, it's all good, man. The information coming out now, y'all. So I'm gonna listen right. for just, her just email. Restitution study group. You 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 you'll get us. Um, the 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 email address is not the easiest to follow, but I'm gonna tell it tell you now. It's R S G I N C O R T at Yahoo. Dot com. So you can um, you can email us there. The website is uh, restitutionstudygroup.com. Um, okay, can, Restitution uh, Study Group. Dot com. And email address is rsgincorp at yahoo.com. Yes, ma'am. Cause they gonna, we got we got to get our uh, they got to serve that uh, retribution and their uh, reciprocity. Because they, they, we're in the day of judgment now. It's time for them to pay for every damn thing they do. I don't care if they come out with no uh, Caucasian resistance therapy or, or CRT. That's some bullshit. The truth coming out on their ass. And they got to live up to it, man. Simple as that. Right. That's right. And, and, anyway, I'm going to be quiet before I start cussing. Uh, I know I hear it here, so I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> I love you. Talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we we feel that this is um, we feel that a lot has changed in this nation. Uh, folks are obviously more receptive to the idea of reparations. It became a big issue in the last campaign, political camp, uh, presidential campaign, but also um, activists from you know Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black Lives. It became uh, an issue, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, where students were young people were tearing down sculptures of slave traders and actually put the fear in some of these very companies that we sued to come forward and talk about the fact that they're prepared to pay reparations. Um, Lawyers of London, Barclays, and I think there was a coffee shop called Greens or coffee company called Greens, um, all have come forward to say they're going to do something. Now, we don't really know what they're talking about doing, but we will be in touch with them to get the details. But this is what seems to be happening right now. There seems to be um, a more, uh, more people are more receptive to the idea of reparations being paid. So, um, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be that many trillion, but it, but we're going the ball is going to start rolling. And obviously, it's happening around this country. We have Evanston, Illinois, a law passed where reparations are being paid twenty five thousand dollars to uh, certain people who are using it toward housing and um, uh, building housing or buying housing, repairing housing. Uh, I love that idea. I, I like the idea of us using money to buy something that builds an equity and you can use it to invest in future 
projects, you know, just, just, you know, rather than getting something that depreciates in value, I think real estate is important. And uh, as far as the trust fund is concerned, our hope is to see property being purchased. We, we are sistering up with uh, the, the National Million Women's March, both coming out of Philadelphia, and we are, uh, will be launching uh, an effort for a million homes for a million black families. We want to see reparations coming from places like Bank of America to, uh, to be used to create housing for our families. Home ownership is the goal. Um, but so many other things we need, uh, we need the resources for. Attorney Deirdre, uh, before we wind things down, Brother Richard, any last words? Well, other than thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, um, I'm, I'm looking into this here gen, uh, genocide um, proximary act, and that proximary act, and that's interesting in and of itself. But a question, yeah. uh, my, my last question for you, if you don't mind, um, you, you, in your, as you spoke to us about your journey and how how you came to it. And then in that, the people that you met met along the way and the engagement in law, um, you know, studies and how do you utilize it? Have uh, any young law students approached you at, at any point in time with the same kind of uh, reflection of your, your drive, energy, or a vision? Um, as you going, as you continue to go along this road, sure. I mean, a lot, quite a number, and um, yeah. I mean, it was a, a, a typical thing, and that's one of the reasons why they they had me teaching. I was an adjunct professor for a little while, and 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 it was because there were a lot of students that had passion but needed to have inspiration as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there there have been, and um, you know folks that I know and probably many that I, that I've never met, you know, that that's, that, that I, I just felt that that's, that's an encouraging note that others like you um, with these kind of skills are out there, you know, um, possibly with the same passion and vision and utilizing it for um, not just for their own, you know, personal development or personal acquisition of, of wealth and, and fame, but just, in the name of um, all of us, um, which would, which we would need, you know, um, that kind of calling, where it comes from, some say from the ancestors. And I really um, appreciate you being that reflection at this moment. And thank you for sharing with our, with the audience from your experience. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, you so much for having me and having us. You know, before <laughs> you go, Tony uh, Deirdre, um, you mentioned something uh, when you were talking to the caller from Toronto and, um, uh, about our elected officials, and I'm talking about black elected officials now that represent mm-hmm. our communities, um, doing business, uh, taking lobbying money from some of these institutions. That uh, oh, I, I, I didn't say lobbying, campaign donations. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. campaign donations. Okay, okay. That's I, what I, I, I don't know about I, lobbying. Money. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, taking money from some of these institutions that have yes. uh, abused our ancestors. Um, I, I think that what you're doing is part of a team effort. And now let me explain to you what I mean, and then you take it from there. Mm-hmm. The work that you're doing, building a legal case 
<clears throat> is similar to what Malcolm talked about when he was talking about taking things to the UN and the World Court and others in our historical mm-hmm. experience. Because a lot of our people know that these thing, these things have happened, but they haven't built a legal case. So when you're talking about the work that you're doing and have done building a legal case, um, I read in some reports that some of the courts are saying, well, this has been so long ago that it's going to take an, a governmental act or act of Congress for something to be done in reference to it. What I'm saying is your work is there. They have your work and they can utilize uh, your team. But it takes other people to pick up the ball and move it down the field. And when I say other people, see, these institutions that have benefited from the abuse of our ancestors and still benefit, a lot of black people don't know these institutions and what they have done because the information is kept from them. But when this information comes out, then it takes a team effort. It takes our black clergy because a lot of our people, you know, participate on Sundays and during the week. It takes our elected leadership to say, listen, if these companies don't do the right thing, don't shop here. Don't buy here. Don't patronize these businesses. That'll force some type of action from these people. It will. But if I'm in leadership and I, uh, you know, some type of some type of tacit effort that I'm for what you're doing, but, you know, I don't really come out strong. Uh, if, if I have a mega church and uh, my money is invested in Lloyd's of London or whatever, and I hear these things being stated, but I talk about something else on Sunday, see that then you're doing our people a disservice. We need everybody on this. You're on this and you have done your work and still doing it. But we need other people that are in, and and plus we need black media. We need black media to put these messages out to our people, to what's going on. Absolutely. So I, I'm just saying that in reference to your work. You, you, you shouldn't be alone out here. And people that are in positions of influence, whether they're in media whether they are uh, uh, community organizations or clergy, and especially elected officials need to do more than what they're doing. Agreed. I agree. And and one of the things I think is really important is to, to recognize who's really doing the work and who is, uh, I don't know, who's mm-hmm. pretending to do the work. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because there are some folks that, that are, are recognizes leaders on reparations who 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 are journalists who are not doing anything except making money as a journalist. You know, this is really important because folks think these folks are our leaders and they're not. These are these are folks who are making money for themselves. They're not working for the community. They're not activists. They're not out here on the front line filing lawsuits and coming up with legal strategies. But at the same time They'll badmouth, you know, folks who are doing the work. And it's really important that folks, all of us, take good, pay close attention 
to who we are seeing as leaders on this issue and recognize who, who's really doing the work and who's just making money off the course. Wow. Let, let me go. We got the, another caller popped on. Let's go to, uh, to Philadelphia. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Good, good evening, Brother Elliot. How you doing? How, good evening, uh, Brother Richard. And Sister Deidre, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> More than welcome. I praise be to Allah. I just want to say to you, Sister Deidre, you know, I was first on to say I was glad you brought up Cali House because uh, a lot of our people, as you well know, may not know about the history of our beautiful ancestor, Cali House, because I learned myself about her about maybe six years ago from, from a good friend of the show, Brother Rob, who's now an ancestor now. Mm. She went and taught me about Cali House and what, and what a tremendous sister she was to our, to our our people, our struggle, and everything. And you know, you know, you know, uh, Sister Deidre, you talk about these companies. A lot of our, and I'm, I'm a 60 year old black man. A lot of our people to this day, they, the average black person and stuff. And I say this with all due due candor, they don't even know about how a lot of these insurance companies they that they do business with, whether it be the Bank of Americas, the Aetna's, the MetLife, they don't even realize that, with the, that the involvement of these groups, these companies in the, in the Atlantic slave trade, they don't have a clue. They just do business with them, thinking that they're just a company they use for, for medical insurance or, or for uh, you know for life insurance, don't even know their history. That's why it's so important, and I think I can't thank Ellen and Brother Richard enough to bring you on, because these, our people need to know about these things. Cause like I said, you can go throughout the United States, you may find one out of every black person that know these things, that these companies was involved in that. It's, it's, not, it's not no knock on them, because they, if you don't know, you don't know, you know. That's why, mm-hmm. like, like that's why, like Mark was saying, you know, your research, you get research, you get rewarded for your research. That's why when you do your research, you find out these things. That's why you, you know, I forgot how Mark phrased it, but it's important. We you know the research about things. You learn about how these people, what they did to our people, and how they benefited. Like you said, Brown University, right here in Philadelphia, Sister Deidre, the University of Pennsylvania, their involvement in the slave trade and all the racism and, and all the experiment experimentation they have did over the years on black prisoners and, and the prisons mm. and, and and what they did with the move for family and stuff. I mean, just so many, I mean, I could just go mm. on and on. So a lot of people just don't know these things. That's why it's important to have a resource like you on the air saying these things. And, and you know, Sister Deirdre, Brother Elliot, I, I sometimes I think Brother Elliot is a prophet because he he actually stole my thunder just now. All the things <laughs> Elliot was saying to you just now, I was going to say those same things about how if, if, you, if you shouldn't be out there by yourself like that, imagine if you had the the the, the back and the people in Congress. Because, like Ellie said, when you got the Congressional Black Caucus, this so-called powerful body of black politicians, male and female. Imagine if they, was, if they took up the matter with you and stuff. And like Brother Ellie said, move that ball downfield. Imagine how how we can move, how we can push, you know, move our people forward. And, and, and see, they sit right up there as a bump on the log when well, they should be doing these things. They they should be the ones. Talk, you know, pushing reparations. They got a, they got a, a microphone. They have a platform. They have, they, 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 they supposedly so called close to this president who they told black people to go out and vote for this past November. So they should be definitely pushing uh, a, a reparation. Reparation. They should be right out there with you. And lastly, mm-hmm. that, that what that bill you was mentioning called the Proxmire bill. I think it is. You said. Mm-hmm. Well, again, there again. Our black and elected officials, especially on the federal level, the, and the congressional black caucus, the, the, the few blacks, whatever—I don't know how many black senators we, we got. Now I don't know if we got any, but 
the, the black the black people that's in Congress, they should be pushing that. They should be pushing. Think about how, how effective that would be. They would push that bill saying that any of these white racist devil cops kill a black man or woman, they should be not only punished, but we should get some kind of the families to get some kind of reparations from that. They should be pushing that front and center. But instead of doing that, Sister uh, Deirdre, they're out there. All they can do is tell us to vote for the Democrat Party. You know, instead of holding these people accountable, what Brother Mark will say, we continue to put these people first, but then put us last. You would, you think about this, sister. You would think that they would be pushing a bill like this. And, and the sad part, men of probably don't even know about it. Right, right. See, that's because the sad part Maya, about it. It is the law. It is the law of the land. It is already existing as a law mm-hmm. on the books. It can and be used. You never, and you never, you never heard none of these black elected officials talk about that. You know, we we got a, a congressman from Philadelphia, who Brother Elliot and Brother Richard are familiar with, a Democrat congressman. He gets on a local black radio station every Saturday. All he talk about is Donald Trump. I don't want to hear about no damn Donald Trump. He's a white devil like the rest of them. What I care about Donald Trump? He's just like the rest of them. But that's all he talks about. Trump, Trump, Trump not even president no more. You know? He talk, I mean, come on, man. We, we, we got an important bill like that on the table. You keep talking about Donald Trump. You keep talking about how, how racist these Republicans is. Well, tell me something I don't know. You know? Come on, man. Mm-hmm. You know, this the kind of foolishness that they, that they get that they that's why they keep our people so dumbed down so the day just the point I'm making they they don't enlighten our people like they should they they was going around to the black community throughout the country turn up about the proxmire bill talk, you know holding these uh, companies like Edna MetLife and Bank of America hold these people accountable they, they was doing what they're supposed to be doing we just should be surprised how 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 our people can move be moving forward at, 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 a, at a more faster pace instead of the pace that we're going now if they was stepping to the plate and do what they supposed to be doing, which is being, a, you know, a representatives of the black community. And, but they, I see more on top of what they're going to do for, 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 for these racist white Zionists over in Israel. And they supposed to be representing black people. You got Warnock down in Georgia. And he was elected by black folks down in Georgia, Sister Deja. Black folks that they, they, they raised in little. Because I got a friend of mine just moved to Georgia the other year. I used to work with at a hospital over here in South Jersey. Black folks down there, they, they took whatever food. Think about this, Sister Deja. They took whatever food pennies they had. I'm talking about dimes, nickels, whatever. They had baked cells, chicken cells, just to get this brother elected to be the first black senator from the state of Georgia. And what do they Negro say as soon as you get in office? I'm going to be the best Jewish politician for Israel. I'm like saying, Jewish? What the hell? You ain't no Jew. You're a black man. You're going to be fighting for black people, fool. What are you talking about? This is the kind of, this the kind of stuff that we deal with, Sister Deja. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know? This kind of foolishness that we're dealing with here, man. You know, so I just get you just get sick of this nonsense. But anyway, I'm not going to hold a lot. I'm going to encourage you, Sister Deirdre, and close to keep doing what you're doing because you're a valuable resource and you're well Thank learned. You. you know, you 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 very you do you do your due diligence in what you're doing, your research. And I just thank Almighty God a lot for you. May I continue to bless you, Sister Deirdre. Keep doing what you're doing because the fight will be won. You're more than welcome, my sister. Let me let me say this to you before you leave, brother. Um, you know, that's why we, you know, me and Richard kind of do what we do in this program to get information out. Now, listen, I'm guilty as other people because I just heard, uh, attorney Deirdre mentioned about Barkley mm-hmm. and the involvement in the abuse of our ancestors. Now I went up there to see a championship fight, uh, uh Earl Spencer's fighting. Couple, mm-hmm. what, about a year and a half ago. If I yes, knew that, sir. I would have never stepped foot in that place. I got you. 
and black people that go there, to, whether they watch a basketball team because the players is on it, even though one player is ostracized because he won't take mm-hmm. a shot. But I'm just saying, if black people knew this, they shouldn't go in that place. But see, you need our people. Listen, she has done her work. Exactly. And still doing it, exposing these companies. And I'm going to get uh, 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 Attorney uh, Deirdre to send me the list so I can put it on Don Bowickney's site. But, you know, people got to take up the banner. And I'm talking about I people agree. in positions got to mm-hmm. take up the banner. Yes, I do, Let black folks know. Listen, if black folks knew that this Barkley Center or the Bar- that family that put that center up mm-hmm. was involved in the abuse of our ancestors, Maybe 50%. You Listen, you're going to still get some blacks to go in that place. But maybe 50% of them won't go. That'll hurt exactly. their pocketbook. Well, uh, but, uh, with the university up in Georgetown, their involvement, one of the prestigious universities, Georgetown, with, with a great passion, you ain't played at college basketball. And I was, I was rooting for, I rooted for Georgetown during those years with John Tops and everything. But I didn't know at that time. And, again, I would still root for them because I root for the brothers, not the, the, the university. But, again, you find out how their involvement was in the Atlantic slave trade. See, see that's, that's what I'm saying. Many of our people don't know that the so-called major universities major banking institutions, major insurance companies was had their hands involved in that bloody Atlantic slave trade. And this was the digits pushing. They need to have to pay for that. Like when Brother West said a few minutes ago when he was on, they got to pay our people for that, man. They do people misery, our pain, our, our sisters getting raped, our babies getting ripped out the, 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 the stomachs of our mothers. I mean, these people got to pay for that, man. They definitely got to pay for that. And they, they, they walk around here like they ain't did nothing, man. Come on. I mean, even look at a, like the Wells Fargo and stuff. This bank, well, did a lot of black people bank at their races. They was caught a few years ago you know, giving black people unfair loans and stuff. And they, and they promised years ago with Tavis Smiley and that fiasco, they promised them to repay black people. I ain't heard nothing about them repaying black people for what they did. So, I mean, with it, I mean the, the stuff just goes on and on with these people, man. So that's why I process the did just for Going, she's going to keep exposing these people and waking up people up. But like you said, she shouldn't be doing it by herself. If these black elected officials step into the plate and get their head out there behind, they could be pushing this stuff and they can go around telling our people about what these insurance banking companies have done to our people and, what, and, what, and how they should be held accountable. But no, instead of that, all they tell you about is how bad their white government on the Republican side is. Like, like we don't know that already. Like I said, what, what I care about Donald Trump or, or Joe, they both two white men. They both bigots. They both... Uh, use don't keep a damn about black people. So don't keep telling me how bad he is and how this one is. We all know that. Like Malcolm and an audible like Muhammad told us 50, 60 something years ago, that's his white brother on the other side of the aisle. That's all. You know, something was that. But anyway, brother, thanks, thanks for taking my card. I was, you know, put me on mute and I'll listen to the rest of the show. Thank you for your call. You're welcome, sir. Attorney Deirdre? Yeah. Thanks for <laughs> your work. I want you to send me, if you can, uh, send me the, the list of, uh, you know, some of the, the institutions that you're talking about, and I'll make sure they're posted on the Time for Awakening site. Absolutely. I, I want you to have all the information about Barclays, too, since, uh, you know, quite a number of folks, 125 slave trading voyages by the founders of the bank using money that went into the bank. Uh, 38,620 Africans were enslaved, and 6,045 of them died before reaching the Americas, so they're buried in the Atlantic Ocean. But that's that's the blood the Barclays has on its hands. Yeah, you, okay. and, and Richard, that I mean, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, our people being destroyed for the lack of knowledge, and I'm guilty of that, just mm-hmm. like everybody else. I didn't know that. I wouldn't have went up there to mm-hmm. see no fight if I'd have knew 
uh, that institution that, that was involved in that throwing our well, you ancestors know, they say overboard. They're gonna pay. They're gonna, they say they're going to pay something. So listen, I mean, somebody say something to to Jay Z. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, you know, okay. Thank you. You know, anybody know how to reach him? Mm-hmm. And maybe he can facilitate starting the trust fund. They Thank said you. they're going to pay. <laughs> oh okay. boy. Tony Deidre, thank you for your work, and I'll My be in touch. Pleasure. You know, thank you for and, and 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 I I, I want to give you a call off the air because I want to. I, you know, I talked with the uh, uh, Antoinette Harrell when she was on. Um, yes. When I was doing a little searching, and I'll just give you a brief. When I was doing a little searching for my family, um, and this was before they put a lot of stuff online. This might have been about fifteen years ago, twenty years. I had to go down to the archives here in the city. And you go in there at 9 o'clock in the morning. Before you know it, it's 5 in the afternoon. And you That's wonder right. where the time has went. But I kind of ran into a big wall. I I, uh, I think I found out that my great-grandfather was enslaved. Mm-hmm. Because I seen him in the 1870 census. He was mm-hmm. 25. And I just assume, um, even though in, in Virginia, you, it did find a few blacks that were free. But I'm 98% sure he was enslaved because in the county that he said he was from, and my last name is Booker, it was about three white families who were slave owners there that was Bookers. Mm -hmm. So I kind of ran into a brick wall, and a lot of people that do family search and run into a brick wall because they don't know where to go from that point. And maybe you you can help me. Mm. But but I'll be in in touch with you. Yeah, I I have an idea where you can. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we'll talk. <laughs> great, great. Thank you mm-hmm. again for your work, and we'll talk soon. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. <laughs> Richard, we'll take a brief break. When we come back, we'll start winding things down. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I 
transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. Just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484 268 9837. For 12 years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind.
not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over $100 billion in reparations and gets $4 billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over $200 million, and they get $21 million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you called me a nationalist, because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America, we know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He's going to still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. Let me just say this before our time winds up. And that is, I want the people in the audience to go back and look at the video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kente. That scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office, and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kente has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene, study the role 
of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip. And you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. Yeah. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful thing. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Back to time for an awakening is nine thirty-two. Coming to the conclusion and end of the program, brother Richard. Yes, sir. Interesting discussion there with uh, Attorney Deidre. Yes. Sir. Um, <laughs> uh, listen, her, uh, her work is necessary, uh, but it's 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 one part. I think it's uh, others have to do their job, including us, right? Including the rank and file, so to speak. Because when we find out these places, then we've got to stop doing business with them. Stop buying certain people's clothes. Stop uh, getting certain insurance policies from these companies. Stop going to these banks, these certain banks that benefited from our ancestors, and, and, and stop buying products from these companies that have done, done the same thing. And, and call these politicians out that don't inform the people of these things. And uh, you heard uh, uh, Tony Dietrich talk about some of these people when I had to change it when I said they're getting they're getting lobbyist money. She said, Well no. She had to she had to clean it up for me. Campaign contributions, which uh, you know, I'm no politician. I look at all of it. You taking money, you taking money. Mm-hmm. But they're getting money from these uh, uh some of these same institutions. I mean, we talked about it uh, about a month ago. Well, they're getting money from these pharmaceutical companies that's pushing these shots in the, in the, all, in the communities. So they're taking money. They don't come back and tell you they're getting it. But they're taking money. And it's proof of it. Yes, and not yes. only them, you know, it, 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 the clergy in our neighborhood, somebody, you know, you, you got to... They have influence on our people. They do. They historically have influence in black communities. I mean, the clergy was different during the time of our enslavement than it is now. 
totally different, but they do have influence and they need to encourage the people to do the right thing once they find out what the right thing is. And some of them already know, but they want to do something opposite and have other people following them. I'm glad you asked that question too, Richard, about the, uh, uh, some of the younger people being involved in her work. And she yeah. said that there was uh, a lot of young people involved in, in uh, the work that she's doing. I, I, you know, I hope Brother West reach out to her because if he's done some research, I'm quite sure the door will be open uh, with that restitution uh, study group that she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I seen where uh, I looked on the website and I seen uh, with uh, Antonette Orell is involved with them. And I, you know, I felt kind of good because she's been, she's been on the program at least twice before. In fact, she was on there and mentioned about that that family that was enslaved up until the '60s. You remember Richard? Right. And she told us about the young man that did the documentary on that. I think I think we reached out to him, and when he couldn't be on, I I never reached back out to him because something happened. He was willing to be on, but he couldn't be on that particular Sunday, and then I dropped the ball because we went in another direction. But um. I, I'm thinking now, especially after she's been on, to reach back out to him. Mm-hmm. It's a good follow-up. And I hope people really take take to mind, and, and I'll be um, redundant, as, as you were asking, you know, not only doing our personal genealogy as far as our personal family, but as um, what is being said, and, and um, not just in our, per- our personal our purchasing habits, but in our becoming politically informed about how the interconnectedness between the politics and the banks, the politics and the economy, Mm -hmm. you know, as as in in relationship to the business of enslavement, but also in relationship to all the businesses that we see now that are providing harm, that there is a relationship. And if we, this, you know, I'm more focused on, as you call it, the rank and file, because if we don't give direction, if we don't pull it off the shelf, and that means those elected officials or even those ministers, we have to pull them off the shelf. Yes. We can't just be keep listening to them or at least have our families and friends listening to them. And they're perpetuating this relationship between these businesses and and the government and then actually talk about how we're being abused by it. That's what this information is supposed to empower us to do, um, to be able to lift each other up, to support each other, to make sure that we understand it's time for that person to become, to get out of here and for another person to take, take, take his or her place in our interest. But we can't do that. As you said, we can't do that if we don't have the information. And we can't do, and it won't nothing happen if we don't act off of the information we get as we get it. Yes. Yes. You can't repeat it. You have to act on it. I agree. And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, in winding down in conclusion, I I just want to reiterate when you brought up that thing, uh, the, the, the ideal about the young people, it's because that's, that's, that's the whole key of, of, of why we do any of this. And why I'm quite sure why she does what she's doing right. is for the young minds coming up that's going to be raised uh, 
in this society and other societies moving forward because there's no guarantee that this place is going to be around. And the thing is, uh, if you look at history, it might not be around uh, to much longer. Who knows? But I know one thing that's going to be around is the historical record. Right. And what she's doing is part of our historical record here. You know, you look, if you look at uh, some of our ancient African history, and it talked about the Hyksos being right. in Egypt, that didn't look like any of our ancestors, but they were there. And the reason we knew it, because our ancestors wrote it in the historical record about them being there and what they did. No, right or wrong, Richard? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so this 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 is part of our historical record here, and the the uh, the legal argument need to be made. I know, uh, you know, you got people out there. Oh, there's reparations. We ain't gonna never get it, and all that type of stuff. Okay, if you feel that way, you feel that way. But the legal argument has to be made. It has to be. It's part of our historical record here, and the young people have to see this being made. We got to teach our young people. We got to teach them. The more you teach them, the more you can start observing talents among our young people. And especially if you put them in, in an environment among others. And I'm talking about real young. You'll start seeing things being cultivated in them as talents that they have. And then you can nurture those talents. Listen, the same way they do it, they flip the script now. Uh, they know that the only way out of a certain level of poverty for black people is sports and entertainment. So what do you see, Richard? What do you see some of our uh, 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 black parents doing? They can't wait to put a ball in their child's hand, a mic in their hand or whatever, because they, if they see them, and some of our people do have musical talent and athletic talent, and you can observe it when they're young. You can see it. Well, just like they got those talents, they got other talents. Leadership qualities. Mm. Construction. Public speaking. You can observe those things in, in young people. You can start seeing it if you're close to them when, they, when they're young, and especially when they're among their peers doing things. Some of these other education, and you was involved in education, Richard, some of these uh, uh, educational uh, institutions, they break the ch uh, children off into groups and have them doing certain tasks. And you observe them. You'll see what's going on. And then we'll see what we should do in reference to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe I'm just venting. I don't know. Oh, no, it's all real. It's all real. Before we wind things down this evening, I just want to give the lineup on time for an awakening media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 in the afternoon. African perspective with Brother Oshi, always interesting dialogue and topics and guests on African perspectives. That's 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Later on, Monday evenings from 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Maria Kamban and Dr. Kamal Kamban. And after that program, from 9 to 10, on the first and third Monday of every month, Conversation Reparations. That's in Cobra's program with host Brother Jamoke. On Tuesday, from 8 to 10, Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers. On Wednesday, 
It's our time, the Black Farmers Program that comes on 8 to 9, the West Georgia Cooperative, and from 9 to 10, uh, Wednesday evening, Black Agenda Project with host Dr. David Muhammad. On Friday, Time for Unawakening is back uh, from 8 until, and then on Saturdays uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., the Elders of Sankofa with host Dr. Uh, Brother Alfonso Watkins, and then on Sunday evenings at 7 time for an awakening is back i want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening lively discussion as always and we'll be back on sunday on friday lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening peace if you're driving through the country Children playing after school. They seem to be so unaware. I know, I know the things that they'll soon have to take care of. Uh-huh.